welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hi, everybody. That was pretty lame. Like, this section here is alive. The rest of you, are you awake? Are you here? So there's a level of nervousness that one gets before one preaches or does something like this nearly every time. Uh, and I've always said, it's kind of like first tee. If you play golf, your first tee jitters. Like if you ever lose that feeling, like just stop competing. And then there's another level of nervousness when you like, you're going to tackle a difficult topic or a subject. And then there's this. <laughs> Today, uh, I sat down like five times to finish this sermon. And I just, it was like... Uh, sometimes they just fall out of the sky. Sometimes I feel like it's birthing a child, what that might be like. Um, and uh, so if you're new, welcome to you. We are finishing a series this morning where we have walked through each of the stained glass windows in this building and uh, asked questions about the people in them and the Beatitudes connected to them and then the missionaries and then Jesus last week, who's behind the screen. Uh, and then this week... That is, in fact, Christopher Columbus, if you were wondering. Uh, so I want to explore this. And ironically enough, this window gets the most sunlight in this whole church in, an, in any given day. It's, it's Christopher. Um, and it also receives the, the most looks and the oddest questions. I was giving a tour early on of the building, and they're walking through, and they stopped, and they're like, is that actually Christopher Columbus in that window? And I was like, yep, sure is. So uh, this ought to be interesting. Um, I have always asked a lot of questions. Uh, I was a very curious child growing up. My mom and dad can attest to this. I've, uh, so always asked questions, things like, why are we doing it this way? Or is there a better way to do it? Or I once did floors, uh, sanded floors with my brother. Have you ever scraped a corner when you sand floors? I always ask, like, is there a more efficient way to do this job? Because I hate this job. Um, but what, what if we did it this way, or why do we believe that, or is that what the text actually says? So I've always been asking questions, and I think this has actually become a part of our DNA at Awaken, where this has become a safe place for a lot of people to ask questions about faith and God and life and doubt and all of those things. And so I just figured I would take that and use that as a framework for today. So I want to frame this morning's teaching in terms of a couple of questions that I want to ask. Um, the questions are, well, yeah, so I want to frame the, the teaching with a couple of questions, and um, I'll begin with a reminder that I began with last week, because I think it's appropriate that when we, uh, when we imagine preaching and teaching at Awaken, my hope, my dream, what I, what I uh, pray for in terms of this part of what we do together is that this is a place that creates space. A lot of times I think we've been to church, and this is the end of the conversation, right? Whatever the pastor or the priest says, it's like, thus saith the Lord. I don't assume that that happens when I preach. I think sometimes it does. Sometimes people have said, uh, God used you to say something. I hope and I pray that that happens often, but I don't assume that that happens every time. Um, so I want to create space. I want this to be the beginning of a conversation, not the end of a conversation. Uh, so I hope that you're challenged. I hope that you're encouraged. I hope that you're invited to reflect and think critically about your faith and about God and about why in the world Christopher Columbus is in this window. So here are the questions. Who was Christopher Columbus? We'll talk just briefly about that. Secondly, uh, what did I learn about Christopher Columbus and what did I learn about studying this guy this week? And then lastly, and I want to camp on this one, what does it say 
that he's in this window. And what does it mean for us as people who follow Jesus that he's in this window? Regardless of where you come from this morning, what I'm not going to do is engage in some kind of political statement or something. I want to stay above the fray, as it were, uh, as it relates to Christopher Columbus. I hope that whatever you think about this guy and whatever you've learned about him and then relearned or, or not relearned, that what I have to offer, I hope, challenges you to think and uh, invites you to, to think critically about faith and about God and about um, this fellow in this window. So that's what I want to do this morning. Are you with me? Okay. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 12, verse, starting in verse 1. I'll invite you to stand if you can. And we will read just three verses. And I want to frame this whole thing from this very, very important text. Uh, I would argue one of the most important texts in the Bible for those of us who consider themselves followers of Jesus or the people of God in the world. It says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. God, as we study, as we engage in this conversation and uh, we approach this text uh, and this person. I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray, God, that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations in my heart would be pleasing to you. I pray that we would work with and uh, that we would uh, deal with one another with care and love and grace. And, God, that ultimately you would be uh, the voice that speaks this morning. Um, so take what I have to offer, what's of you, God, make it loud and clear. What's not, I pray it would just fall off the end of the stage. I pray that you would invest this teaching with kingdom power, God, the power that uh, raised Jesus from the dead that has the ability to transform us and make us into new people who look more and more like you. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So this text, Genesis chapter 12, this is kind of a sermon in search of a text. Sometimes you come to a text and you just preach the text. Other times you have a topic and you're looking for a text that sort of talks about your topic. That's what this is. Um, neither are right or wrong. That's just what it is. So this is a sermon in search of a text. And I wanted to sort of start here because this is the beginning of God's people in the story of the scriptures. This is a story about Abram, who becomes Father Abraham, who becomes the father of the Israelite nation, who becomes sort of the beginning of God's people in the world. First Israel and then Jesus, right? Jesus redefines God's people in and through himself and says, any and all follow me, and you are a part of this covenant family that begins with Abraham. And I think it's important for us to remember that at the very beginning, if nothing else, we know that God's people in the world should be a blessing, so if you leave here today and you don't remember anything, I hope that you remember that question. Are you, if you're a part of God's people, if you're a part of Jesus' followers in the world, are you a blessing to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your family members? And if not, why not? Is the church, as a, as a, a general group of people, a blessing in the world? Is the good news of Jesus good news for everyone? And if not, Why? And how do we move more and more towards that? Because that's where it starts. So who is Christopher Columbus? Uh, born between 1450 and 1451. Most people have a birthday. 
This guy, we don't actually know when he was born. This is actually one of the reasons why he was not sainted in the Catholic Church. Uh, he, there's no real proof of his birth, uh, place, or date. We think he's from Genoa, Italy. Um, but one of the other reasons why he wasn't sainted was uh, there are no miracles attributed to his life, and he fathered an illegitimate child. So that one will get you kicked out real quick. In case you're working towards sainthood, you want to steer clear of that one because you got no shot. All right? Um, he was obviously an accomplished sailor and an explorer, uh, but history tells us he was a terrible governor. After, I think, his second journey out in about 1500, um, he, was, <laughs> he was appointed the governor of Hispaniola, which is uh, modern-day Haiti, and he was actually arrested and taken back in chains to, um, to where he came from. And uh, one historian says this, if you want sources, by the way, I will give them to you. I'm not going to quote them all today, but they, I have sources here. Uh, one, one historian of Latin American history says this, Columbus's governance of Hispaniola could be brutal and tyrannical. Native islanders who didn't collect enough gold could have their hands cut off. Rebel Spanish colonists were executed at the gallows, and colonists complained to the monarchy about mismanagement, and a royal commissioner dispatched uh, a ship and to arrest Columbus in August of 1500 and brought him back to Spain in chains. So he was not a good politician. Uh, regardless, two more uh, journeys were funded by the people who funded the first two, so it didn't disqualify him from going back. Interesting. Uh, he was the captain of four total journeys, of course, if you know the story, funded by Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain. He shopped this idea to multiple countries who said, your calculations are way off, pal. You're not going to make it. But these guys thought, hey, let's roll the dice with this fella. And they did. Uh, he took journeys to modern-day Haiti, Cuba, and the surrounding islands. And um, we know for sure he did not discover America. Okay, so whatever, I will go on record saying that. He did not discover America. He didn't really discover anything because there were people living there. Um, many, many people, actually. Uh, he didn't discover America, nor did he discover Asia, which he intended on doing. To his dying day, to his deathbed, he thought he discovered the passageway to India and Asia. Like, he was the laughing stock of the, of the town where he was, but he, like, to his death, he's like, we discovered the passageway to Asia and India. He was passionate, if nothing else, about that. Um... Which Spain was interested in finding for a couple of reasons. One, the spice trade, which was a very lucrative deal, but also religious and apocalyptic reasons. Um, they thought that if they found this passage to India, they could convert Jerusalem back to Christianity and that the world would then end. That once all of Asia was converted to Christianity, Jesus would come back. So there were apocalyptic sort of connections to this voyage. That's really what he actually thought would happen when they found it and they converted all of the people they found. This is a picture, one of the most famous pictures that we have of Cristoforo Colombo, his actual given name, uh, anglicized Christopher Columbus, so we can't actually call him Colombo. I've been doing that lately as a joke, but that was his real name, guys. Somebody said, is his head not disproportionately small to his body? This is a very good observation. It might be the robes, it might be Photoshop, we're not sure. <laughs> he also has very long fingers, so that's kind of odd. Go back to the artist on that one. So that's Columbus. So much more could be said, but we'll leave it at that because I want to focus on things that I think are much more important. What have I learned while I'm studying this fella? A couple of things. Two that I want to mention this morning. Number one, history is defined by the people telling the story. 
History is defined by the people telling the story. And what I mean by that is you can find any opinion and version of Christopher Columbus in this story that you want to find out there. They are all there. And they are all passionate. Many of them are passionate about their take on Christopher Columbus. Which if you just zoom out and take the general principle, history is often told by people nearly every time. And depending on who those people are, often dictates or colors or, or uh, influences the history in which we're being told about. For example, here are a couple of quotes. The first one, I warn you, is terribly insensitive and possibly insulting and alarming. This is real. For some time now, there has been a lot of mischief afoot in, the rep- in which the reputation of Christopher Columbus has been unduly sullied. It is only a matter of time before the infamous anti-Catholic, anti-Christian, pro-pagan, pro-Muslim ACLU and the SS of the intolerant liberal state will succeed in having the holiday of remembrance of Christopher Columbus changed to something PC, false, demeaning, and utterly unjust. Much of the polity is ignorant thanks to the PC-sanitized government schools and, the easily, and is easily swayed when not, when not outright flummoxed. That's a good word flummoxed before the venom-tipped tongues of those who hate Jesus Christ and hide under the mantle of patriotism and rights, surely the last refuge of those who betray truth itself. This is a real person. (laughs) This brief article is in defense of Columbus. Thank you. I was not sure. I wasn't sure what your position was yet. So we have that on the one hand, which of course goes on to create a very glowing report of Columbus and all that happened, to this. What he had categorically not done was discover anything, as somewhere between 50 and 100 million people already lived there quite happily, just as they had done for tens of thousands of years. On the other hand, what he did do was to start a brutal slave trade in American Indians and usher in four centuries of genocide that called them to virtual extinction. Within a generation of Columbus, landing perhaps 5 to 10% of the entire population of the American Indians uh, were remained. So obviously, the other end of the spectrum. My point is, you can find it all. Pope Pius XIII is quoted to say, by his toil, hundreds of thousands of mortals have, from a state of blindness, been raised to the common level of the human race, which we could talk a long time about this quote, reclaimed from savagery to gentleness and humanity, and the greatest of all, by the acquisition of those blessings of which Jesus Christ is the author. The assumptions in that are astounding, but we'll leave that there. My point in saying all this is that history or the facts are never just the facts, right? There's there's no view from nowhere. We all have a perspective. We all have a lens. No matter what the issue is, no matter what's being reported, what's being talked about, there's always an angle or a perspective from which the story is being told. Now, I say this because this is an important lesson to hold or an important learning that I would encourage all of us to have very near. You could do a couple of things with this knowledge. You could sort of throw up your hands and say, well, who do you trust and who can you believe and, you know, nobody. Or you could be diligent to ask hard questions, good questions, and surround yourself with wisdom, a diversified understanding of a particular topic or subject or person. One pearl of wisdom that I would offer this morning in my learnings of 38 years would be this. 
related to this idea of history is told by those, or, or history is affected by those who tell it. Always be open to the view from the margins. See, often on a particular topic or subject, there's the majority view, which is most of the time held by the people in power and with influence. And then there's kind of the marginal views, the, the views from the outside. I would encourage you, as critically thinking Christians in the world, to never sweep away lock, stock, and barrel the minority or the margin views on a particular topic or theological conversation or person. If you think about the scriptures, the scriptures are full of minority or marginal on the edge views. The dominant framing story in the entire scriptures is the Exodus, in which a group of people who were enslaved and oppressed are liberated from the most powerful country politically, militarily, and religiously that the world had ever known. This is the dominant story in the scriptures. The prophets themselves are voices from the edge. They are not the voice of power. They're not from the center. They're always from the outside. Jesus himself was a voice from the margins. So I want to encourage you to be critical, not antagonistic or belligerent, but critical of a view whenever it's held by the majority or people in power. All you need to do is watch House of Cards. <laughs> to know that people in power will go to great lengths to preserve their power and their position. And this is not an indictment on any one group of people. This is a human condition, not a one kind of person condition. This is human. This is what we do. This is part of our story, part of being broken. So I would encourage you, one pearl of wisdom, don't sweep away the view. Hold them all together. Ask critical questions, especially of the ones from the center. Because often there's a lot to lose by those who hold that position or that view on a particular topic or subject. So history is determined by those who are telling a story. Don't be naive. Dig a little. Be critically thinking people. If I could, man, I want that so badly for this community, for us who follow Jesus, to not be dumb, to not be uncritical when we say something that we believe, to have thought through it with, with, with humility, but with conviction, wherever you stand on a particular topic, whether it's Columbus or something else. Think it through. Be, be able to defend your position with 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 humility and respect and dignity, right? First Peter 3 says, always be, give, always be willing to give reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Don't be a butthead. That's Peter's, right? Okay. So what have I learned? Certainly that. I would also say, this is more of a reminder than a learning, but the worst atrocities in human history are often connected to religious belief. Can we say that out loud? And it is, it's sad, it's heartbreaking when you think about and you go back from the Muslim crusades of the first millennia to the Christian crusades of the second millennia, from the Holocaust to Rwanda, which may have not been specifically religious, but certainly influenced by, to any number of wars that are fought, often at the center, if you dig deep enough, is religious belief and conviction, which is just astounding to me when you think about the Jesus story. A guy 
who was a crucified Messiah who gave who exemplified sacrificial love for his enemies gets turned into power over coercive dominance and colonization, even to the point of death. How on earth do we get there from the story of Jesus in the scriptures? It is mind-boggling. When our efforts, and if our efforts as people of uh, that follow Jesus look like domination or persuasion or violence or coercive action, we can be assured it looks nothing like Jesus and that it cannot fall into the category of missions and being an ambassador of the gospel. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen. So, Genesis 12 starts with, God's people in the world are intended to be a blessing for the world. Whatever you believe about Columbus, I think that's a good reminder. Now, what does it mean that this is a window in this church? And I want to sort of camp here for the rest of our time. What does it say? As we were talking about this Sunday, John asked a great question. He's like, what does it say that that's a window? Like when somebody walks in this church and they look around and they're like, oh, John Ireland, okay. Don't know much about that guy. There's a boulevard named after him. Jesus, Christopher Columbus, what does that say? I'd offer a couple of thoughts. One would be that we see what we want to see. Oftentimes in life, we see what we want to see. If you're married, you could turn this into, or if you're in a relationship with someone, you could turn this into, we hear what we want to hear. Right? How many of you, by raise of hands, have been in a conversation where your, your partner or spouse said, you said this, and then your response was, I never said that. Anybody ever been there before? Yeah. Right? I mean, countless times I'm like, no, what I said was dot, dot, dot. And the person's like, no, what you said was da, 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 da. We often, we hear what we want to hear, and it colors or influences what's being said so that we think that it means this. And I want to suggest that I don't think this is much different, that why is Christopher Columbus in the window? Is it possible, or is it a testimony to the fact that a group of people saw what they wanted to see despite evidence that might lead you to believe something else? And again, before we go pointing fingers, that is not the intention here. Because whoever put this window are, are not the only group of, not the only people in the world who have seen what they wanted to see, right? <clears throat> If this is true, that we see what we want to see, here's at least one implication. When we see what we want to see, whether it be a historical event or a political or a religious figure, we have often surrounded ourselves with people that look like us, think like us, act like us, vote like us, which is a very dangerous place to be. When we see, if we see what we want to see, it is all the more important that we, as individuals and as Jesus followers, surround ourselves with people and relationships that are not monolingual, monoethnic, monoeconomic, monopolitical, monocultural. Because when we do, there is often an affirmation of what we already believe and think. And this, among other things, is what leads to all sorts of fundamentalism. And, that, and it goes... Badly, quickly. We need each other 
and our differences in each other to reflect back to us the contrast and definitions of who I am and who I am becoming. If everybody in my life looks like me, thinks like me, acts like me, then all I see reflected back to me is me. You might be thinking to yourself, that's funny that you say that, Micah, as I look around the room. Maybe not mono everything, but certainly mono in a couple of categories, right? Can I invite you to pray with me? Lately, I have been compelled by this idea that more and more and more, Awaken would, would be a diverse experience. Culturally, ethnically, linguistically, economically, politically, that there would be a diversity of experience and stories in this room because when there is friends, what's reflected back to us is not an affirmation of what we already believe and think and are, but rather the, the, the shape, the definition, the contrast of me and what I'm becoming. We need that. So can I invite you as a church to pray with me? My prayer is that God would open the doors for us at Awaken to be in more and more relationships with people who don't think and act like the majority of the people in the room. Would you commit to just praying that God would do that? From the beginning, I, I, did, I, I didn't set out to plant a multi-ethnic church. Some people do, and that's a part of their story, and it's a, and it's a grace and a burden that God gives them deep in their hearts. And it, for me, that wasn't a part of my dream and vision of, of what this community would be. I always encouraged us as a leadership to be open to what God might be doing and the partnerships that we might form. But there's a growing sense in me that we're missing something. So I would just invite you to pray with me that God would open doors for us to be in more and more relationships with people who don't think and act like us. Amen? I think we see what we want to see. What else does it say that this window is in this building? I would say that there is, there is something redemptive in every human being. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God created them, male and female. The scriptures tell us a story from the very beginning, and they do well to note that both man and woman are made in the image of God. Which means that everything that is good and beautiful and true and right about masculinity is in and a part of God. Everything that is good and beautiful and true and right about femininity is in and a part of God. All that is good about being a man is a part of who God is. It, we come from this being. All that is good and beautiful and true about being a woman is in and a part of who God is. God is neither male nor female. God does not have genitalia. God is gender full. So everything that's good about being man, everything that's good about being a woman is somehow encompassed in the being of God. And you and I are made in the image of that God. Now, what does this mean? Despite how bad it's gone, despite how far you've drifted, despite whatever it is that you've done, the source remains the same and it cannot be erased. You are made in the image of God. And so having Christopher Columbus in a window maybe 
is an invitation to remind us. Especially if you hold to the view that it wasn't all tea parties and respectful conversation when they, were, when they arrived. That there is something of redeeming value in every single human being. There is unsurpassable worth and value in every human being. So let me just stop and say, maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you think you've drifted too far. Maybe you think that whatever it is that you've done and the choices that you've made, whoever you've disappointed, the long list of them or the person, that it is irredeemable and irreconcilable. And I just need to stop and say that the story of God in the scriptures ends differently than that. That's the good news. That's a part of the good news of Jesus. So, we see what we, we want to see. There's something that's redeemable in every single one of us. The flip side of that is we are all capable of horrible, horrible things. <laughs> Last night, I was taking an Epsom salt bath because I ran 18 miles as I'm trying for this marathon. This is not, I'm not sure why I decided to do this, but I've done it, so I'm going to do it. So I'm, I'm <laughs> literally in the bathroom. The door is closed. One of my kids slams the door, which drives me batty. I just fixed those doors. And I literally scream from the bathroom, stop slamming the doors! And I have this moment where I, where I imagine what this sounds like from the neighbor's house. <laughs> I mean, I was so mad. Two things in life that trip my trigger faster than anything else, my children and golf. <laughs> I played golf with my brother the other day, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, my brother, and I acted like an absolute imbecile. It was so embarrassing. I called, I texted him, and I'm like, you know what? I think I owe you an apology. I was no fun to play with, and I probably acted like I was 12. And those are silly examples, right, of me when I've lost my temper or wasn't able to control my temper. But friends, if we lined everybody up, right, that used to be a confessional before we got here. And there's something about that that I sort of wanted to preserve because we all have stuff to confess, because there is horrible, horrible things in all of us. You see, in Scripture, Pharaoh, the arch enemy of the people of God, the Pharisees, the arch enemies of Jesus, not technically, but some people think, Rome, Egypt, slavery, they're not foreign places and lands that I have never been to before. I know them all too well. They are me, and they are you. That's the power of the story sometimes. It reads you. Sufjan Stevens has this great song about a guy named John Wayne Gacy. You guys remember this guy? Wow. The last line of the song says, Even in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Just look beneath the floorboards for the secrets that I've hid. Which leads me to a final reflection. If that is true, and those possibilities are in me too, and in you, then they and them is not helpful. What do I mean by that? Often when we disapprove or disagree with someone or something, we use the pronouns they and them. In effect, we create an other 
that we can objectify and separate ourselves from and then gain life from the distance that exists between them and me. Right? And the worse they are, the better I feel because the distance is greater. Many of us look at this window and we think, gross, I cannot believe that he's in that window. They and what they stood for, it is not me. And that may be true. In fact, for many of us, I'm guessing it it is. I'm hoping it is. But may I suggest that in this case, with this window in our church, that it might not be the best response, they and them. So can I offer another possibility? There is a certain level of ownership and responsibility that we all need to take for the brokenness that exists in the world. Because we are all human, and we did this. Whatever it is you can think of that's broken, that has caused death and pain in the world, we, we did this. You, maybe not specifically, did that, whatever that is, but we collectively, there is a collective responsibility that I think we should and could take for the brokenness that exists in the world, which doesn't make them and they and an other, but a collective we. David Crowder puts it this way. He says, Oh, great God, do your best. Have you seen this place? It's all a mess, and I've done my part too well, I confess. When we create a they or a them or an other out of someone else or a group of people, I want to suggest that it is often an attempt to separate and differentiate ourselves from something we detest. But if we are honest, we know deep down inside that the seeds of what grew in them are present in me. And so our only response that is fitting today and every day, whether it's this window or this story or something else, is a prayer that the mystics and the sages have been praying for years and years and years, and I will close by offering it for us to pray today. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What does it say that this window is in this building? How do we respond? How do we... Maybe this is a reminder of a few things. But my hope and prayer that our response is, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So as we move into a time of silence this morning, I'm going to invite John Mark uh, and the band to come up. And as we gaze at this window this morning and every other morning that we gather in this place, may we be reminded That sometimes we see what we want to see. So God, open the doors for diversity, for a diverse experience. May we be reminded that there is something redeemable in every single human being that has breath in their lungs. May we be reminded that in me is the capacity for terrible and horrible things. And that blaming and pointing fingers isn't actually helpful. But, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm going to offer a word of prayer, and I'll invite you to a time of silence. We've had as a part of our gathering the last couple of weeks this refrain that the church has prayed, Lord, have mercy, Kyrie liaison. 
And so John will teach it to us, and I'll offer a prayer, and we'll sing this together as a response. Really, we started that refrain for today. <laughs> We've been doing it the last couple of weeks. But let me offer a word of prayer in a time of silence. God, as we gather here in this place this morning, wherever we've come from and whatever we believe about this particular person in this window, I hope and pray that you would challenge us to think deeply, to think critically about our story, about our history, about those who have gone before us, about the things that have been done in your name. God, that we would collectively repent from the things that we have done. God, that we would learn from the mistakes, from the victories for the sake of the gospel. That you would shape this community, these people, me as an individual, to be more and more and more and more like Jesus. As we enter this time of silence, God, would you speak the words that we need to hear. Please receive this benediction. May we remember that at the deepest human level, we are part of the brokenness. We did this, and we all need to be rescued. May we also remember that there is something redeemable in every human being and that it is the grace and mercy of God that enables and draws out of us all of the beauty and light and goodness that is in us. So let us depend upon that grace and mercy and be people of blessing and peace in this world. Amen. Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching.